0: Now you remember the story in 2 Kings um, of Elisha and his servant. I like it to call it Elisha's prophet, um, prophet, uh, apprentice. So Elisha, you know, Elisha was the apprentice of Elijah and Elisha had this servant. And um, in 2 Kings chapter 6, you'll find this story about the king of Syria who is, is getting really frustrated, this king of Syria, because every time he goes to attack Israel, his plans get thwarted. It's like every time he tries to do something, the enemy knows, the enemy being Israel, the enemy knows what he's going to do. Every single time. And he, and he, and he talks to all his advisors and says, which one of you, basically, which one of you is, is dirty? Which one of you is the mole? And they're like, it's not us, it's this fella. His name's Elisha, right? And he is, he, he's got like a spy in the sky. He's there and he tells Israel everything. It tells the Israeli king everything that's going on. He even tells him what's going on in your bedroom. And so the guy's like, oh, we've got to get him. You know. So what he says in your bedroom, what you say in your bedroom. So, so the, the king's like, we need to get this guy. We need to get Elisha the prophet. Elisha's living in a town in Israel called Dothan. And so the king sends these armies, those chariots, mighty men, you name it, they had it and they surrounded this entire town of Dothan, all for one man, this one man, Elisha the prophet. Um, And I don't know if you remember what happens next, but what happens is this this apprentice prophet wakes up and he opens the curtains and he looks out and he sees this army just surrounding the city on every horizon. He's like, Elisha, wake up, wake up. Come on, they're they're, they're coming to get us. Look at them all. And Elisha, do you remember what Elisha says? I'm going to actually read it to you. I've got it here. It says, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And you know what Elisha said? He says, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I don't know, if I was Elisha's apprentice at that stage, I would probably have thought he's lost his marbles. He's he's off his rocker. He's gone. There's nothing we can do. We're going to die. We're going to die. But what does he say next? Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He was someone who communicated with God. He was aware of this thing called the glory of God. So my question for today, what is the glory of God? And is this the kind of relationship that we can have with God? Is it something that's available to us today? And what's the basis of this kind of relationship that Elisha had with God? So these are some of the questions that our text is going to address today. For those of you who like a bit of structure, um, the passage is actually really easy today. It can be divided into two sections. Um, I'm going to call them the two chunks. Chunk number one is verses fourteen to nineteen. That's Paul's prayer. Okay. Chunk number two is uh, verses. 20 and 21, that's the end of the chapter, right? And that's the doxology. We'll talk about what that word means in a little while when we get there. So Paul's prayer at the start and then the doxology. But let's start with that first chunk, chunk 1, verse 14 of chapter 3, Paul's prayer. Now, if you look carefully at verses 14 to 19, you'll actually see it's a single sentence. Okay, It's one of, one of Paul's mega sentences like Dave talked about in, um, in chapter 1. He has a few of these mega sentences. Actually, they really only happen in Ephesians. There's like a bunch of them in Ephesians and maybe one or two in all of the rest of Paul's writing. So there's something about Ephesians which is really triggering Paul to write these epic sentences. So it's actually unusual even for him, right? But we have these epic sentences and it starts like this verse 14 with me in chapter 3 of Ephesians. For this reason. But we find that we've already got to stop there and try and get some context, right? For what reason, Paul. Well, or could it be what Paul has just talked about at the first half of chapter, th- chapter three, perhaps? Um, this is what Tony took us through last week. Uh, Tony took us through last week. He basically um, said that he, Paul, has been you know, a part, a set apart for the gospel, right? And then he outlines kind of what the gospel is. Um, and then he talked a little bit about his own suffering. Um, and Tony unpacked that really well for us last week. Is that what Paul is responding to? Is that, is that why he says, for this reason? Well, no, because if you look at the start of chapter three, the first verse of chapter three, what does it say? It says, For this reason, I, Paul, where does he finish that thought? The answer is he doesn't. He actually has this divine distraction and he comes back to it here in verse 14. He has this divine distraction, this kind of Pauline parenthesis, if you will, that basically is triggered by mentioning his own name. And he says, oh, while we're on the topic of me, he says, I, Paul, this is me. And that's what Tony talked about last week. But to truly get the context for for why he says, for this reason, we have to go back all the way to chapter 2. And what is chapter 2 talking about? That's what Grant shared with us a couple of weeks ago. That you were Gentiles, he says, separated from the people of God. But you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, so that you have access by the Spirit to the Father, And not only are you individually brought near to him, but all of you Gentiles and all of you Jews who share a common faith in God are being built up together into the temple of God. That is the dwelling place of God. So Paul says, for these reasons, for the reasons that you have a new relationship with God and that God is doing something specially new collectively, for these reasons, Paul says what? That I... Plan that I work, that I do this or I do that or I go here or I go that or I plan this program or I make this policy? No, not yet. Paul says, for this reason, because of what God is doing in you, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named three points just in this section alone this general point on prayer prayer is the action of a faithful people I think as we think about what's important for our church is it how well our preaching goes is it how slick our music is is it how smooth our sound system runs I hope not Um, the thing is all of this is just throwing sand in the wind If we aren't coming before God as a church in prayer. Prayer must underpin everything that we do. Or it'll be for nothing. We had a beautiful time together this this week with men's group on Thursday night. Um, You know, James, where's James? There you are. (laughs) Brought a really cool word from Thessalonians just about, about, really about boldness. And, um, but my favourite part of the evening was at the end of the night when we broke off into pairs and Dan and I got together. We just prayed for each other. Uh, and it was, just, it was just a super sweet time of just being in the presence of God together. When you speak to God, He answers. So I guess my question for each of us here today is, what have you been praying for? What have you been asking God for for your family? For your church. For the lost in the city of Newcastle. In what way have you worshipped God in prayer? And how has God answered? Because God answers. Part number two in this section is that you see that Paul bows his knees. Now, sometimes this did happen. It was a way to pray. But the majority of the time, a Jew, do you remember how a Jew would pray? They would pray standing up. With the hands outstretched like this. So why does Paul say, I bow my knees, I think. He's coming to God as before a king. Why? Because as we said in chapter 2, he's just seen God do the impossible. He's reflecting on the fact that God has done something that he thought would never happen. In fact, Paul was the one, if you remember... When people talked about the Gentiles coming in and being a part of the family of God, Paul was the one who killed them. It was scandalous. Do you realise how crazy this idea was? That Jews and Gentiles should be brought together and Paul says, God, I'm on my knees before you. Only in Christianity, by the way, do you see that kind of love. You know, the people that Paul killed will be the ones who cheer loudest when he gets to heaven. He has seen God's power at work and now he responds appropriately. And point number three, just to drive home the magnitude of what it means to be able to pray to the Father, Paul uses this little play on words here. The Greek word used for family is basically derived from the Greek word for father. It'd be like if our word for family was father clan, for example. So Paul says, I pray to the father. And there are a couple of ways to translate the Greek here for the next bit. You can do it like they do in the ESV here, um, as all families. Have a look at that. But the NIV, the NEB, the authorised version, um, and a bunch of commentaries, including Stott, Guzik, Spurgeon, BDB, they all actually translate it as the whole family. So all of the family. The whole family. Um, And so you would get, and I think that's a preferred translation. I'll explain why in a sec, but you would get, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole Father clan in heaven and on earth is named. And I think it's a better fit for the context. Because everything in this book is about the unity of believers. In other words, there is one single family of God's children in heaven and on earth comprising angels and men, Jews and Gentiles. And what Paul is saying is that we, as one unified family of faith from all generations, derive our name from the Father. It's a statement highlighting two aspects of God. Number one, God's grace. Number two, God's power that he was able to do it. That means that we find ourselves in this amazing situation, sharing familyhood with all the saints who've gone before. I think about my grandfather who passed away last year, who had a life of faithfulness in God. And we're still family. Not just in a memory sense, but an actual real right here, right now, sense. we are family and we will remain family. And not just in a genetic sense either. In this, in this very special context of God's family together. I mean, you could think of so many examples of people who've gone before. Note here, I guess, in light of these aspects of God's nature, Paul just dives into the prayer itself. And I'm, I'm going to read the whole prayer so we can get the full impact of it. But, But just... While we're reading it, just take note of that. Every time he says the word "you," why are you? You, it's actually the plural for you. It's not you singular. Okay, so it's like saying "y'all," you know, or if you're in Australia, "use." Right. say so Um But just picture for a second that you're in—you're a first-century resident of Ephesus, all right? a believer in Jesus. You're facing persecution. But you are surrounded by this faithful family of believers. And Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ... That surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. I love that prayer. When was the last time you prayed like this? When was the last time you heard someone pray like this? I mean, most of the time I don't pray like this, if I'm going to be honest. Do you? Most of the time it's like, I thank God for this thing and and that thing because, you know, You've got to say thanks a lot of times before you can start asking for things. You know, that's how it works with prayer, right? That's what you got taught. You've got, you got to say thank you. We, I mean, and then, you know, you, you remember someone that's saying, you know, adoration, you, the acts of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, so I've got to confess a few things. I've got to say a few praise things, you know, and then, okay, let's get on to the media bit let, Let's ask, some, ask God for some things, okay? Um, and then we go through the list of things that we want to ask for. Now, I don't want to give the wrong impression here because these are still legitimate prayers. They're not wrong. And in fact, discipline is really important when it comes to prayer. Discipline is super important. And in fact, if you're praying regularly, you're miles ahead of most Christians on this planet, I believe. At least most Christians in the West. But what we see here with Paul is different, isn't it? It's like he can't contain himself and and the prayer just pours out of him. That according to the riches of his glory, he would strengthen you. I like how the net net translation says, it It says, according to the wealth of his glory. We don't really use that term riches very often. Like, you know, you see some crazy wealthy person um, and your mate goes, yes, he has very vast riches. Um, When you're talking about someone's financial situation, you say that person has a lot of wealth. Or you just say he's rich. So I like, you know, that according, that according to the wealth of God's glory. But that really raises the question, what is glory? I mean, and just how rich is God's glory? So a little word study here, because I think it's important to understanding the meaning of the text here. Glory, the word doxa in Greek, it initially meant um, just the opinion of, um, That's something had something or someone had from others, right? So it's it's like your the recognition or your fame. It's the opinion of you, of that one person amongst other people. That's how it was originally in Greek. But from the third century BC, what happened is the translators of the Septuagint. It gets a little technical here, but the Septuagint was a Greek version of the Old Testament. Now you know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and a couple hundred years before Christ, a group of scholars decided they wanted to translate it into Greek. And it's called the Septuagint because that means 70. And you'll see it LXX, all right? That's Roman numerals for 70. That's the shorthand for Septuagint. Okay? So the 70 men, apparently 70 men, I think there was actually 72, but anyway, um, they translate the Hebrew Bible into the Greek text. And the word they use for glory in the Old Testament so there's, there's a few words for glory, there's like six different words, but there's two particular words which they translate from the Old Testament as doxa in the Septuagint. Those two words are Shekinah the Shekinah glory, you would have heard about that and kavod, which is the most common word for glory in the Old Testament and so this, this little Greek word doxa took on a special meaning amongst Jews who believed in God Jews who spoke Greek. So it meant it came to mean both of those meanings together. Both that that fame and that opinion you have of someone, but also the Hebrew meaning, which was which was this this praise of God that was due to his inherent value. Okay? This immense value of God. Along with also these notions of with the Shekinah, this physical brightness as well. So, so God's glory is really the recognition of every aspect of who he is. His moral nature, his power, his mercy, his perfect foreknowledge, his sovereignty, his goodness, everything. The word riches here, or wealth, just means a large amount of something. Or an abundance. So you could rephrase it like this, according to the abundance of the praise that God deserves. And how much praise does God deserve? All of it, right? A lot. So, what's Paul actually saying? What's he asking? Well, he's he's basically asking that to the maximal amount possible, God, would you do these following things? Let's list them. There are five. Number one, that he would strengthen these believers by his Spirit. You'll see it in the text. Number two, that he would dwell in them through Christ. Number three, that he would cause them to be rooted and grounded in love. Number four, he would make them comprehend the vastness and to actually know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And number five, that he would fill them with his fullness. There's a lot in that. The implication of Paul asking in inerrant scripture that God would do these things is that God does do these things for you, the believer. God strengthens you and Christ Jesus dwells in you. We could use some strengthening, I think, couldn't we, as a church? And I'm not just talking about Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. I'm talking about the church at large. I think if there's anything the church needs right now in this country, it's boldness. It's strength. It's strength. You read through Acts, you know, and these guys, they, they didn't have very well-developed theology necessarily. Now it's important to know a few things about God, but is our problem a lack of knowledge about God as a church? Or is our problem that we're not putting what we know into practice? I think it's the latter. God, would you strengthen us, Paul says, would you strengthen us according to your glorious riches? The second point, that you are rooted and grounded in love, is Paul's desire. That This is the result of God dwelling in you by his spirit. The image of rooted here is the image of the tree. Okay? The tree that is this great, strong, living thing that sends its roots down into the ground, that stands up to storms. You can cut a tree off above its trunk uh, and a lot of the time it will regrow. It happens a lot. I mean, when you go to our farm... You can, we cut trees down periodically for firewood or to get rid of them because they're you know, a problem but what's left there is this trunk because they're almost impossible to get rid of you've got to burn them or pull them out with an excavator, or, they're actually really difficult to manage a tree stump okay? now I'll have a tractor, it, doesn't do, it can't do it have a, not like a 90 horsepower tractor it can't get rid of a tree stump it just can't the, the, that, tree, that, that that picture of being rooted in the love of God and grounded, that, that image of grounded is, is that of laying the foundation for a building. We have our foundation set in love. And that, that foundation is ready to be built upon. There are times, I think, when you just have to get back to first principles as a believer. We need to continue to find our foundation in the love of God. I, um, some of you will know this story. I, I run a little bit. And um, last year, I decided to go for a slightly... Well, just for my long run for the week, which is supposed to be 20 k's. And so I'm meeting a friend and we get out to the place where we're going to... We decide we're going to run a little bit into the bush along a track and then back again. And so he actually bailed. He didn't come. He he said, I can't make it. I've got a sore knee or whatever. Um, And so I was like, oh, well, mistake number one, I'll do it on my own, okay? Mistake number two... I kind of assumed I knew what I was doing in terms of going through a bush that I'd never been in before. Mistake number three, I didn't take my phone. Mistake number four, I didn't tell anyone where I was going. Um, Mistake number five, it was raining and it was really, really wet. And so I start running through the bush and I'm about 10 k's in, 15 k's in. I'm like, I should be getting to this road that I'm expecting right now and it's not coming. I'm 20Ks in, and then I, well, I uh, started 15Ks in, I heard dogs howling, right? Wild dogs, there's dingoes. And uh, when you're on your own, there can actually be a threat. So I hear these dogs howling. I look, like, oh no, <laughs> this is really scary. My heart got up to 200 beats per minute. 200 beats per minute. I have it all tracked on my phone, it knows exactly where I went, on my watch, sorry. It doesn't can't communicate, but it can just tell me where I've been. And so, I'm like I'm not getting to where I think I'm supposed to be going I need to turn back So I turn around and I start running back to the car But somewhere along the way I missed the turnoff That was supposed to be going back towards the car And I, I've picked up a stick To fight the dogs away Because I'm going like, to really defend myself Against a pack of dingoes really easily um, And I'm running, running, running And I was exhausted I was, I'd really only worked up to running 20 ks And I, it ended up being A 30 kilometer run but what I did, at one stage I just stopped running because I kept on running. I'll get there eventually, I'll get there eventually. Get, I had a pretty good indication that I had missed the turnoff because the track just petered out to nothing but bush. And I thought, what am I going to do? And the first principles, I don't know if I've read this somewhere, is that you know apparently water goes downhill. So I thought if I find a stream, the stream will take me to a creek you know, if I go a creek to a stream, whatever, whichever one's bigger, that's going to take me to a bigger creek. It's going to take me to a bigger creek and eventually I'll get to a river and I know most of the rivers in the area and if worse comes to worse, the river will take me to the ocean and I'll be able to find my way to society. So, <laughs> so that's what I did. I jumped into a creek and the, and the sides in the creek are like this in the bush. Like if you've been out to these mountainous, bushy areas, this is like, there's hills like this. And I couldn't run outside. The creek. So I had to run inside the creek, and I'm hopping on rocks, and I'm swimming for part of it, and, and drenched, and it was it was horrendous. I literally thought I was going to die. Uh, I did pray, you know, a few times uh, the whole time, uh, and eventually I got home. Uh, well, I got back to a farm, I saw a farm I was like, that sense of immense relief when you finally see something that you recognise and I made my way to this farmhouse eventually where some guy comes out going who the heck are you? <laughs> I'm like, can not just call my wife, is that okay? He's like, he's like, yeah sure, okay I was like, yeah I just got a bit, where am I by the way? <laughs> I was in some like road that was just miles and miles away from where I thought I was got completely turned around the point of that story is that when things go wrong, we've got to come back to first principles. Okay? The first principle is there because life can get a bit hectic. right? Sometimes there's threats. Sometimes you're arrogant and make stupid decisions. Sometimes things just don't turn out very well. Sometimes you're tired. Sometimes you're scared. That's life. We've got to come back to first principles. For me, in the run, it was just going downhill, down a stream, to a river, finding a farmhouse. For us, it's this right here. That you'll be rooted and grounded in love. And he goes on to the first purpose of that rooting and grounding in love. What is it? That you may have the strength, verse 18, to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ into verse 19. In other words, to be able to comprehend even further the massiveness of that very same love in which we are rooted and grounded. Do you see that? It's incredible. So we, we are rooted and grounded in love so that we can comprehend that love. It's so powerfully here we see the truth that the Christian faith is one of response. All that we do is in, as believers is in response to what God has done for us. We love, why? Because he first loved us. Jesus loved us so much that he became the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and he took on himself the penalty for our sins whilst at the same time offering to put on us his righteousness. But the story doesn't stop there. How should this reality change us? Because then we go even further to say that the purpose of that comprehension, the purpose of that knowledge itself is to produce again, not external works, but as the text says, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And here's a question to ask yourself. And I ask myself this question as well. When people see us, When we rub shoulders at work, at school, at sports matches and family gatherings, at hangouts and meetings, do people see us as being filled with the fullness of God? I mean, what does that even look like? I think it probably looks like Stephen in Acts chapter 6. He was a man full of the Spirit of God, full of grace and full of power, it says in, earlier in chapter 6. And he stands up in front of this crowd when they were getting ready to stone him for preaching one of the most amazing sermons you'll ever hear. And what does he say? He says, Behold, as they're getting ready to stone him, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I see Jesus what it looks like to be filled with the fullness of God it looks like a dear acquaintance that Kendall and I made when we were in Jordan when Zim was just 10 months old a lady called Aileen she's an Australian woman who moved out to that country when she was 27 to reach the Bedouin for Christ and she's still there today at age 91 serving the Syrian refugees in the north of Jordan. She's friends with the royal family. She's friends with the poorest of the poor. She speaks perfect Arabic of every kind in that region. That's what it looks like to be filled with the fullness of God. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? What's inside of you? Have you been changed by the Holy Spirit? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of mockery? Of rejection? Of persecution? Of suffering? faith I remember the first time that I was truly broken before God it was no coincidence that it was the first time I truly felt the full weight of God's grace for me I'd put my trust in God already a few years earlier, I'd been baptised I turned away for a season because he wasn't enough I wanted something else So I tried what the world had to offer, from chemicals to relationships, and you know what, it felt good for a while. But I was a shell of a person. But one day, in full acknowledgement of my own guilt, I came before God and I said to him, Never again will I walk away. Never again will I turn my back on you. Lord, I'm yours So Paul has prayed for the church at Ephesus and he's reflected on some incredible attributes of the God we serve. There's something about recognising God's love for you that will make you respond in pure praise. I think if your scholarship of God doesn't lead to worship of God, then there's something wrong. And we see it here with Paul, probably the most intelligent Christian of his time. The most well-educated, Paul moves into this final little section of this chapter, chunk two, in our And he delivers this doxology. Doxa meaning glory, we've looked at that already, and logos meaning a word or, or speech. So it's these words of praise, this speech of praise. It's like a song in the middle of a letter. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So two promises here, and there's one prophetic petition. Promise number one is a promise of God's power. You'll see that there. Promise number two is a promise of his work in you. And then there's the prophetic petition. This heart cry that God would be glorified. First, God's power. There's so many places in the New Testament we are told that God is able. God is able. God is able to provide for you. 2 Corinthians 9.8 God is able to deliver you. Hebrews 2.18. God is able to keep what you have committed to him. 2 Timothy one twelve, God is able to establish you. Romans 6.25. God is able to keep you from falling. Jude 24 and 25. God is able to save you to the end. Hebrews 7.25. God, God is able to secure you eternally. John 10.28-29. Jesus says, do you believe that I am able to do this? Matthew 9.28. The answer is yes. And finally here, God is able to do more than you can ask Or imagine. Given the context, I think it's really talking about God doing wonderful things in and through his people. Not that he's limited to those things, but that's the context we're seeing here. God is able to do wonderful things in and through his people, despite those people. Despite me, despite my brokenness, God is able to do wonderful things. And it's his spirit in work in us. It's not dependent on us dependent on something we already know to be both powerful and perfect and that is the spirit of God in us Paul says in Colossians 1 29 for this purpose also I labor striving according to his power which mightily works in me his Holy Spirit as believers we don't need to find some new source of energy and this is promise number two The source of our power is already at work in us. And that's the Holy Spirit. When you look back, you can reflect and see what God's already done. It's evidence of what he will continue to do. It's evidence of the power, even if you think it's small. It's evidence of the power that God has working in you. So what does verse 21 mean? I'm going to paraphrase what I think is the best understanding of this verse. It's a prayer, basically, that God the Father would be glorified or given his due recognition and praise. And I guess, um, you know, when we, we give him his due recognition and praise forever and into eternity in regards to what he has done, what he is doing in the church, and especially what he has done and is doing in Christ, his only Son, who sacrificed himself for the church. And will someday come again to take his bride. It's a, it's a, it's a clunky sentence to try and translate. But you'll, you'll see that you know, in Jesus and in the church. That's where, God, that's where God is glorified in those two places. In Jesus and in the church. So why do I say that there's this prophetic request, number, number three in this, in this section? We know that God is being glorified. He's being lifted up already by His people and the angelic hosts. But the culmination of this will happen in the future. Philippians 2 verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. There's that word again, of God the Father. Let me just read that section. Do you remember the end of... I'm going to go back and read just just those last couple of verses. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory in Jesus and in you, the church. How is God glorified in you? That's the question we need to ask. How is God glorified in you? What does it mean to glorify God at work in your family? Do you remember the end of John's Gospel? Where Jesus comes, he's been resurrected and he comes to his disciples in chapter 20 and he appears a number of times actually. But on this one occasion he appears, they're in the room in the evening on the first day of the week and the the doors are locked and the disciples were afraid of the Jews, they're hiding inside. And Jesus comes and he, he stands in the midst of them, among them. Um, do you remember what he says to them? He says, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. And how did they respond? Do you remember? They were glad, actually. Which is kind of weird. It's like, why were they glad? They were glad because they'd seen that Jesus had been resurrected. That Jesus had said and done Everything he needed to fulfill his promises. That Jesus was here with them right now. So he says, peace be with you, shows them his hands in his side, and they're calm. But what does he say to them next? In John 20 verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Now, the disciples at this stage are already calm they're happy right why is he saying peace be with you peace be with you is something you would say to calm someone down okay I think the reason that Jesus says again peace be with you is because what he's going to say to them next Jesus says to the disciples who are fearful for their life but who had seen the resurrected Christ he says as the father has sent me even so I'm sending you And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. In essence, Jesus said, I've done it. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. But he doesn't leave it at that. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And this is what this passage is all about. We have the Spirit of God in us. God is asking us to step out, to be faithful to be bold to be courageous to be be 100% committed to him remember Jesus said many of you will say to me Lord, Lord on that day Uh, and I'll say away from me I never knew you do you know the Jesus who laid down his life for you I mean I think each of us do i hope what are we going to do about it together as a church what does it look like for calvary chapel in newcastle to be living out the glory of god how does it look we don't need to get stuck in the knowledge of things it's it's fun it's exciting it's important it's fun to talk about the knowledge of of god what are we going to do about it how is god calling us to step out in faith who does god want you to talk to Who does God want you to pray for? What does God want you to pray for? Where does God want you to go? Let's think about these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are with us right now by your Spirit. Thank you that you are moving among this group of people. Thank you that you love us, Lord God. You have called us according to your purposes. Lord, we acknowledge that you are above all things. Lord, we acknowledge that you are great above all. Heavenly Father, we, we know that we are a mixed bag and that sometimes we have every intention of following you 100%. And sometimes it seems a little too hard. I pray that your spirit would strengthen us. As Paul prayed, that your spirit would strengthen us to be filled with the f- full, full with the fullness of God. Lord, fill us with your fullness by your Holy Spirit, Lord God. Do with us something special. I think about these disciples, afraid and alone in the upper room. It must have been Thomas wasn't there. There must have been a maximum of I guess ten. And um, and look what you did with that group of people. We've got 20-odd here. What will you do with us, Lord God? Have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you would like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.